All right, so, um, so just a word of apology, first of all, for any um, sort of catarrhal uh, intonations that I might have. So I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of recovering from something quite lurgious that I had last week. I'll refer to that in my talk, actually. Um, so hopefully you can hear what I'm saying. And, and it is being recorded, so you know, um, so you can listen again. So the title of this talk is uh, "Death is Certain, Life is King." And I'm going to begin with uh, a poem, and you might recognise this poem. Some of you will. Hour after hour, day after day, we try to grasp the ungraspable pinpoint the unpredictable. Flowers wither when touched. Ice suddenly cracks beneath our feet. Vainly we try to track bird flight through the sky, trace dumb fish through deep water, try to anticipate the earned smile, the soft reward, even try to grasp our own lives. But life slips through our fingers like snow, Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. So that poem, if you didn't know it, is called Life is King. Um, if you don't know it, it's by Bhante Sangharakshita. And I'd like to come back to it and explain why I've begun with my talk, begun my talk with it. In fact, borrowed it to form part of the title of the talk death is certain, life is king, uh, a little bit later. The way I'd like to give this talk is to make a number of personal reflections on my own relationship with death, whether my own or of the people who have been close to me, and to intersperse those reflections with some extracts of Dharma texts and some short pieces of poetry. I'll then make some suggestions as to what value our relationship with death might have to our spiritual life, and in the process suggest what's meant by the much misused word spiritual. In writing the talk I had a strong sense that I can only really comment on my own relationship with death, and the questions that are raised by that relationship. This may or may not invoke parallels for you. So see what you think. Incidentally, this is the third time I've given a talk on Parinirvana Day, even though I don't really give all that many talks. And this reminds me of something that a good friend of mine, a good friend well known for the dryness of his sense of humour, said when he heard that I was planning to co-lead Parinirvana Day again. Is that because you're a miserable so-and-so? <laughs> Although it's also possible that he used a slightly stronger term than so-and-so. So, just to make a couple of things clear before we go any further. Firstly, I'm not generally miserable by nature. And more importantly, much more importantly, this talk certainly isn't intended to make anybody miserable. Some of, some of it may involve some sadness. But I think it's important to understand that feeling sadness isn't the same as being miserable. There's a big difference. Anyway, it's traditional on Paranirvana Day for Buddhists to look at death and our relationship with it. 
and maybe think about how that relationship could become less problematic or more meaningful. I think that's what we're trying to do in essence. Obviously in the context of looking at what the Dharma can tell us about death. For myself, I've been thinking recently that as things have turned out, I've managed to have quite a close acquaintance with death in terms of the number of deaths I've witnessed in my life or looking at it another way, the number of funerals I've attended and have sometimes been asked to speak at. So I could start by remembering some well-known Sangha members who've died in the past year with whom I certainly had some close connections and obviously you may have been closely connected with these people too. So later this afternoon there'll be plenty of time for all of us to say more about these Sangha friends as well as about other people whose deaths have been personal to us. Firstly then, Stan Kuklovich died very suddenly in June last year, immediately after his own son's funeral service. I remember thinking that the word grotesque could describe this turn of events, if any could at all. I'd counted Stan as a good friend over several years, and it really felt as though we were beginning to come closer still just before he died. Apart from anything else, Stan had very recently started work here at the Buddhist Centre. Ariamati died also suddenly on the 27th of September last year. Although I didn't really know her well, I liked her a lot and I really respected her passion for social justice and her qualities of independence, fearlessness and unstoppable generosity. Buddha Rakshita died only six weeks ago, six weeks ago today, on the 4th of January. He and I were members of the same order chapter, so I saw him pretty, I saw him pretty regularly and had become very fond of him, as I know many members of our Sangha were. He was a sweet, charming, witty man whose positivity in the face of old age and ill health I hugely admired and enjoyed. I also made a list of the people close to me who weren't Buddhists who've died during my lifetime. Firstly, and in many ways most importantly, uh, my dad died of cancer in 1974 when I was only 15. I suspect that the effect of losing my father so young has had a part, in a sense, in shaping the rest of my life. I remember one of the more immediate effects of his death. At the time I made a passionate pledge to myself, at 15 years old, never to follow any god, a pledge that I've been careful to keep. A good friend, Stephen committed suicide in 2002 after a period of severe psychosis, leaving a widow and two preteen sons. My mum passed away at the age of 88 in 2004, having spent her last few years becoming increasingly ill and frail and fearful. <coughs> My uncle Stuart died in a long-stay psychiatric ward in 2006. He had watched himself become progressively more demented and it seems took a decision voluntarily to starve himself to death. Another good friend, Rowan, 
committed suicide in 2007. I saw her four days earlier and she talked vividly about how far she felt the world was from the idealistic vision that she'd had when we were both younger. My sister's husband, Mike, died of an aggressive cancer in 2011 in his early 60s. And there was also a very significant family death that happened long before I was born, but I didn't learn about it until I was in my 20s. I found out that my maternal grandmother had committed suicide, also in her 20s, taking a baby girl with her and leaving behind my mum, who was less than four at the time, and my grandfather. So why have I recounted all that? all these personal losses, because I think all of this history has uh, a cumulative effect and just what sort of effect that might be I'll come to shortly. Uh, sorry, excuse me a moment. So, of course, my relationship with death isn't just about witnessing the loss of friends and family members. Like most people, I suppose, growing older myself causes me to have ever more frequent reflections on just how easily my own life could end. So, firstly, I'm aware that I've had some very close shaves in the past, coming within inches of a high-speed impact on a motorcycle almost being hit by a big slate falling from a high roof in a gale, passing through King's Cross Underground Station minutes before the disastrous fire in 1987. If any one of these events had been timed just slightly differently, I probably wouldn't have survived it. I have no idea when the next such brush with finality might crop up and whether I'll get away with it that time around, to coin a phrase. Up to now, I've always enjoyed pretty good health. In fact, I've never been a hospital inpatient, unless you count the maternity ward at Brighton General for a few days in 1959. However, I sometimes reflect that this good health record could come to an end at any time, on any day. There's no logical reason why it couldn't be today. I assume that my body works pretty well most of the time, but there are lots of bits of it that could malfunction in all sorts of unpredictable ways. <coughs> of course, the interesting thinking about all of this, in a sense, is that I fail to take it seriously most of the time. I take my survival up to now and my relatively good health for the time being pretty much for granted. Yes, I know that everything could very easily go pear-shaped, but having acknowledged, that sorry, having acknowledged that possibility with my rational mind, I then just mentally file it away and don't do anything in particular with it. Am I unusual in this inconsistency, or you might even say this irresponsibility? Also, if I'm in denial about my own vulnerability, and possibly even more so about the chance of losing those who are dear to me. This threat feels considerably worse in some ways than the threat of my own death. So for example, when I wrote this part of the talk, 
I was sharing a room at home with my 24-year-old daughter and couldn't help having her in mind in this context. However, I seem to deal with that greater threat through even greater denial. I normally don't, just don't allow myself to contemplate the possibility of losing someone as important to me as one of my children. So it seems that despite everything, despite the past near misses, a good understanding of how my health could easily go wrong in lots of fascinating ways, concern for my nearest and dearest, and of course many years of Buddhist practice, I, re I really don't get the truth of death. And there are other pieces of evidence for my behaviour that all seem to support that statement. <coughs> so, in everyday life, I either put the possibility of my own death completely to one side or harbour a fear of it. Of course, I shouldn't even say possibility, that's a giveaway in itself. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've really come to terms with the loss of any of the people that I've mentioned. For example, 40 years later, I still have a recurring dream in which my dad turns up in the present day looking just as he did before he became terminally ill back in the 1970s. I ask him what he's up to, as you would, and he replies that he's on a sort of leave of absence from being dead. Obviously the holidays are a bit limited in the afterlife. On a more serious note, although I'm no psychologist, this does seem to suggest something pretty unresolved in my experience. Then again, in common with most people, I think, I don't actually acknowledge that I could be doing whatever I'm doing for the very last time, which could of course be precisely the case. If I'd started this talk by saying I may well not be around for next Parinirvana day, or even this may be my last Buddhist festival, <coughs> you see, <laughs> I might not make it to Buddha day in May, um, you'd probably think I was being a bit morbid. But of course, neither of those statements would be unreasonable in logical terms. Just last weekend, I chose to attend uh, Siddhi Sambhava's event called Death and the Only Beauty That Lasts. It was an excellent, thoughtful event. But my strongest conclusion at the end was that I still had processing to do. Processing. There were plenty of good practical messages that my head had taken on board that I'd written down for later reference, but I can't honestly say that I felt a burning urge to do anything differently from how I normally do it. So I asked myself, what will it actually take to bring me into a more realistic relationship with death, short of actually experiencing it for myself? Then again, in parallel with all this denial and avoidance, I managed to react fearfully and irrationally in the area of my own physical vulnerability. When I became ill, as I did last week, I very easily assumed that the illness is the start of something nasty. In fact, the thought can quite often come to me, will I ever have a day of feeling well again? I also sometimes have morbid dreams in which I suddenly develop very unpleasant symptoms of something badly wrong with me. I did last week, actually. 
Of course, all of this is quite funny at a certain level. Uh, that same humorous friend that I mentioned earlier also once asked me, as I took some paracetamols, how long have you been suffering from hypochondria? <laughs> Amusing as my response to illness might be, it does seem to have another aspect of a failure to look the inevitable fact of my mortality squarely in the face. Can you relate to that yourself? So obviously we need to move on and look at what I'd need to do, or actually what we'd need to do, to change our relationship with death to be at the least a little bit more constructive, a little bit more helpful. After all, in the bigger picture of Buddhist teaching, death is simply an aspect of one of the three lakshanas. Lakshanas, a word that we can conveniently translate as universal truths. The lakshana in which death features is primarily that of impermanence. So we can say that impermanence is one of the three universal characteristics of the law of conditionality. If you're not already familiar with how important that teaching is, how important this law is, uh, it's right there at the very heart of the Buddha's conceptual teaching. If you want to understand, at least at a conceptual level, what reality looked like to the newly awakened Buddha, there's your answer. Reality conforms to the law of conditionality, which we can summarize by saying that all things, all phenomena, all processes, and crucially for us, all beings, arise and fall entirely in dependence on a vastly complex set of pre preconditions being either present or absent. One of the three logical consequences of the law of conditionality is impermanence, which when we apply it to the lifespan of living organisms, gives us the concept of death. We can therefore say that the significance for death, of death, sorry, for Buddhist <coughs> practice, is that it's, it's the sharp end of a much broader truth. The importance of being the sharp end, of course, is that there's the greatest chance of that truth actually hitting home and embedding itself in our awareness. Having said that, as a regular teacher around the Buddhist center, I teach the idea of impermanence on a frequent basis, but as a human being, I clearly still don't get it. In fact, all three, all of the three lakshanas, Firstly, impermanence, second, unsatisfactoriness, and lastly, the complete absence of lasting identities are all quite easy to understand with our reasoning minds, but seemingly incredibly difficult to reconcile with our attitudes, especially those we hold about ourselves. These attitudes can be, and very often are, at complete odds with these three unavoidable aspects of the universal truth of conditionality. One of these attitudes has something to do with unfairness, asking, why is this happening to me? Or why has this happened to my loved one who didn't deserve it? This is essentially the context of the famous and beautiful story of Kisa Gotami, <coughs> who couldn't accept the death of her only child in infancy also known as the parable of the mustard seed. 
The Buddha uses a brilliant application of his skillful means to rid Gotami of her overpowering, delu overpowering delusion. Her complete inability to accept that death had been so unfair as to come to her baby son. In the collection of stories of the Buddha that I inherited years ago from my father, Gotami speaks to us of her newly found understanding through this translation. No village law, no law of market town, no law of single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds of gods, this only is the law that all things are impermanent. So maybe the answer to the, rid the riddle of death in particular lies in being able to see the full story of impermanence in general. Seeing, as we might say, the opportunity as well as the threat. This is for me the wonderful thing about all three lectioners. The truths not only of impermanence, but also of unsatisfactoriness and the complete absence of lasting identities. That what initially sounds foreboding and threatening can be flipped around to represent the very means of our liberation from suffering. Anyway, staying with the lakshana of impermanence, just where does that potential for liberation lie? Well, I think part of the answer is that it shows us that change is always a possibility. We can always learn and grow as long as we're aware. In the novel by John McGregor, If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, a father gives some heartwarming advice on being aware to his young daughter advice that we could all benefit from. He says, you must always look with both of your eyes and listen with both of your ears. This is a very big world and there are many, many things you could miss if you're not careful. There are remarkable things all the time right in front of us, but our eyes have closed like the clouds over the sun and our lives are paler and poorer if we do not see them for what they are. Where then is the potential for liberation in our experience of death? We've already said that death is the starkest reminder we have of the universe, universal truth of impermanence. In an impermanent universe we can see the day-to-day -day maintenance of life as miraculous instead of taking it for granted and seeing it as our default assumption. In his epic Under Milk Wood, the Welsh poet Dullan Thomas speaks through one of the poem's many characters, the poetically inclined Reverend Eli Jenkins, who writes, For whether we last the night or no, I'm sure is always touch and go. I love the Reverend's matter-of-fact fatalism. Maybe something we could remember every bedtime. However, a more sophisticated angle on the same truth comes from the great Indian scholar and Mahayana thinker Nagarjuna, who says, Many things threaten life, which is even more ephemeral than a bubble full of air. How amazing is the opportunity to exhale after inhaling and to awake from sleep. 
Also, impermanence means change, and an important sense in which change can be liberating is that it's a source of beauty. This matters a lot because we need to be moved by reality in order to take it on board. Remember Bante's famous saying, the central problem of the spiritual life is finding emotional equivalence to our intellectual understanding. Bearing in mind the importance of this, we can say that we are often moved by the impermanent, as suggested by the following three examples that all appeal to me, that have all moved me. So firstly, the Tibetan teacher Tsongkhapa, who reminds us of the preciousness and the transitoriness of our own bodies. <coughs> the human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body, it is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty, it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal, make use of every day and night to achieve it. Nagarjuna, whom I mentioned just now, is strongly associated with the teachings of the Buddha, known as the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, or Discourses. One of the shorter of these discourses, the Diamond Sutra, has a section called the Delusion of Appearances. Within this, there's another passage about impermanence and insubstantiality, which struck me as extraordinarily beautiful when I first encountered it. We're told by the Buddha, So I tell you, thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. I've also taken two short examples from a talk given about ten years ago by Vajradarshini, who was then the chair of the Tiratnaloka Women's Retreat Centre. The talk was called The Transitoriness of Life and the Certainty of Death and included some references to poems from <coughs> excuse me, the Zen tradition that strongly evoked the sadness but also the beauty of impermanence. Both of these examples used dewdrops as symbols of extreme impermanence. So firstly, the, the 13th century enlightened poet Dogen. Dewdrops on a blade of grass, having so little time before the sun rises, let not the autumn wind blow so quickly on the field. And secondly, a much later Japanese poet, Kobayashi Issa, who lived in the 18th century, and was a lay priest of the Jodo Shinshu sect. He says, The Lakshanas can cut like blades sometimes, while the dewdrop world is the dewdrop world, but yet, but yet. I'm going to finish soon, so I'll try to draw some final conclusions. I think that the process of writing this talk 
and also going on the weekend called Death and the Only Beauty That Lasts, both made me look closely at my own relationship with death. I have to conclude that I probably can't take away the bitter pain of loss, and that's probably as true for us Buddhists as for any other human beings. I remember being moved by something that Parami said several years ago when she herself spoke here on Parinirvana Day. It was something like, just because you're a Buddhist, don't think that it doesn't break your heart when someone that you love dies, which I felt I really needed to hear. In fact, our teacher Sangharakshita very movingly bears personal witness to the same truth. In the epilogue of his volume of memoirs called Moving Against the Stream, he describes the aftermath of the suicide of his dear friend Terry Delamere. He writes that for several days he felt a strong wish to follow and that he wept every day for six months. So at the very least, maybe we can take courage from the fact that we all go through this pain of bereavement. Why should a Buddhist make things any different? Why should being a Buddhist make him any different? However, and this is the real message of this talk, we can see the loss of, in, of bereavement in a bigger context, namely that it really brings home to us the truth of impermanence, a truth that we almost seem to be hardwired not to get. If and when we do see that truth, maybe with the help of our experience of death, then we're really in a position to make spiritual progress, significant spiritual progress. So by the way, I need to define the word spiritual here, because I think it's a word that we can use far too lightly and not really understand. The definition that I really respond to, uh, thanks to Maitre Bandhu at the London Buddhist Centre, is that a spiritual matter is simply one that is seen firmly and truly in the context of our own limited lifespan. A spiritual life is one that truly faces up to impermanence as applied to oneself. Anyway, what I'm saying is that experiencing death helps us to get impermanence as one of the very hallmarks of reality itself. As Padmasambhava, the legendary bringer of the Dharma to Tibet, advises Queen Gang Chung to begin with pay urgent attention to impermanence then strongly turn your mind towards taking refuge. In other words if one really takes on board the lakshana of impermanence it's an excellent preparation for going for refuge to the three jewels. <coughs> so we can begin to see how that truth, that lakshana is potentially a liberation rather than a curse. There are so many benefits to that liberation. Firstly, it can provide the impetus for us to prepare for our own deaths, not only in practical terms, but in psychological and of course spiritual ones. And this was the most, well, this was most of the theme of Siddhi Sambhava's weekend uh, a week ago. And then again, it can remind us to value the people in our lives more fully, including, of course, our spiritual friends within the Sangha Jewel. Whatever you do, don't wait until you're asked to speak at a friend's funeral to say how precious that person was to you. 
tell them and tell others that they are precious long before the time of their death arrives. Again, it can help us to appreciate the poignant beauty of, again, to quote the Diamond Sutra, all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And, of course, it can spur us on to live our lives as meaningfully as we possibly can once we realise how little time there might be for us to do so. None of these messages is new, but of course they're worth hearing again and again, put in different ways, and maybe that's one of the more important functions of a Dharma talk given at a festival. So I'd like to finish by going back to Sangharakshita's poem Life is King, which is also where this talk began. Maybe now the meaning of the poem is clearer if you're not familiar with it. Life is king in the sense that in the face of all of our vain efforts to control, to master our lives, they are what they are. They're subject to the lakshana of impermanence, to the other lakshanas of unsatisfactoriness and insubstantiality, to the universal law of interdependence and to reality itself. Hour after hour, day after day, we try to grasp the ungraspable, pinpoint the unpredictable. Flowers wither when touched, ice suddenly cracks beneath our feet. Vainly we try to track bird flight through the sky, trace dumb fish through deep water, try to anticipate the earned smile, the soft reward even try to grasp our own lives. But life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. Thank you.